I'll just take a moment just to pray together. God, thank you for um, this story and uh, and the beauty of it, the intimacy in it, um, and the opportunity it presents to us, God, to um, to see your heart, to know you, um, and for you to know us. And so it's in that space, God, that we ask you by the Spirit to um, be our teacher this morning. Open our hearts to new revelation where we need it. Uh, Guide our steps, God, as we leave this place, uh, using your word to do so. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, have you ever stopped to think about um, the questions that God asks in the Bible? Just the frequency, the number of times that God asks a question. For many years, I've over, I'd overlooked that kind of thought, and I'd, and I'd missed it. I'd missed the, the magnitude of questions that God asks in Scripture and perhaps if you're like me, you miss God's questions too. And it could be just that that's an issue of perspective for us. Like within the evangelical world of Christianity, we sit within, we tend to look at the Bible as a book of inspirational answers, not questions like if, if you have those posters of memorable scripture verses or scriptures you're memorizing in Sunday school, you're, you're likely not going to find one with a question on it. That's not typically what sells. So um, we come to the Bible thinking that it's, it's actually going to give us some sort of guidance with practical solutions for everyday concerns and dilemmas, right? With me? So how would a question help with that? Especially an open-ended question. Like you don't board a plane, for example, expecting the captain to ask me, where would you like to go today? Or go to a restaurant, your favorite restaurant, and have your waiter ask you, what are you in the mood for today, right? There are itineraries and menus for those sorts of things. And, and the same goes for the Bible. We don't typically come to expecting to be confronted with question after question after question, yet the Bible, when you really read it, is loaded with God's questions. There's varying opinions about this, but based on some of the research I've done, the number of questions that God asks in the Bible is somewhere around 300. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the number of questions God asks in the Bible, but Jesus is said to have asked some 300 questions in the New Testament alone, okay? 180 of which I've read are unique questions. They're not repeated in the various Gospels, and only three of which, by the way, Jesus actually answers which I find fascinating, that he's uh, being asked questions and asking questions, and he only answers three questions directly. Old Testament, it's a, it's, you know, if you add that into the mix, God's questions come at you with a staggering frequency. So you take the book of Job, for example. Beginning in chapter 38, which is toward the end of the, of the book, God begins to speak out of this violent storm. And, and there, Job 38 to the end, 70 different questions that Job asks, um, or that God asks Job, that are penetrating their questions about creation, sovereignty, the meaning of suffering, life and death. All of which, if you just really reflect on it, is it leaves you with this question, why? Like, why would God ask question? Why would an all-knowing God, who already knows the answer to every question ever asked, bother? Like, what's the point? It just seems to be a waste of God's time. Um, one of my favorite billboards I ever saw is in Manhattan. <clears throat> I was walking with Elizabeth and Martin Elliott along the High Line one day, which is this elevated old railroad bed. And we saw this billboard um, up there, and it had this big arrow pointing downward. And, and as we got closer to it, you see this arrow is pointing toward this parking lot. And the, and the text on the billboard said this, stop praying, God has better things to do. Which is funny to me, because at the time we'd been living on Capitol Hill, and so Elizabeth would often pray for parking spots, and we'd get them, whereas I'd pray... We'd never get them. But I, it, it really kind of really highlights this thing. Why would God ask questions? It seems like God has better things to do, doesn't it? Um, and linguists will tell you there's actually a lot of reasons for this. 
Um, that questions have different functions in conversation. So if you could think of the Bible as a conversation, that questions elicit information. Uh, the questions inspire people to discover something new, to unearth new knowledge. Questions persuade. So good, adept courtroom attorneys, they ask their uh, they ask witnesses questions, they, and they do that to make an argument and, and ultimately to persuade the jury, right? Uh, questions stimulate thought. My wife's also a teacher, and that's good teachers ask questions of their students. They don't just lecture at them, as I often do with you. So, uh, and here's probably the most important aspect of questions and why I think God asks questions. Questions uh, cultivate intimacy. I mean, that's why you sometimes leave a conversation when you're with someone over coffee or, or another drink of your choice, Stories are told, trust is built, and you feel noticeably warm, right, and, and closer to that person because uh, you shared questions, and those questions sparked mutual commitment as well as curiosity about each other's lives. Questions in some way communicate that you care. Um, maybe that's the reason God asks questions, because God is just expressing his care for us. It's his way of creating intimacy with us, intimacy that has the power to transform. Um, I mean, I think that's the root of God's questions in the Bible is transformation. There's a much greater possibility of transformation when a question is asked than just given a straightforward answer. When God just gives you the meaning of life, not going to change you. When he asks you what you think about it, going to change you every day. Especially when that question is asked by God who knows exactly what questions to ask. This has been my experience as I've begun to live with God's questions. They've invited me to look deeply and honestly at my own heart, both its darkness as well as this God-given beauty. They, they've challenged me in my relationships. They've engaged me realistically with the pain and the suffering of our world. And so somehow God's questions have just gotten inside of me um, like, a, like a pinball, and they're sort of just changing me, changing me from the inside out. And so I believe as we come this morning to John 21, which happens just days after Jesus' resurrection, we'd be wise to listen to some of the questions in it. So to that end, if you have the bulletin, the outline in it is pointless. So just scrap that. We're just paying tree companies right now. So, um, But we're going to do this instead. And go ahead and throw this up, Greg. I, I created a new outline. It's a slide in there. After the scripture, maybe you can find it. Do you see it? There it is. Thank you. you can, and you can just leave that up. So as you read this story in John 21, there's actually three transformational questions in there that I want to meditate on with you that Jesus asks. Um, we heard one of them in the reading, and there's two others that we'll... We'll go through. So in verse 5, Jesus says, friends, have you any fish? Or haven't you any fish? And then in verses 15 to 17, he asks this repeated question that you're probably familiar with. Do you love me? And then the, the last one is the end of the story where he asks um, Peter, what is that to you? So I want to unpack these questions as a way of discovering maybe what God has for us this morning, okay? So first, uh, verse 5, friends, haven't you any fish? So his first question takes place on the beach of the Sea of Galilee shortly after the resurrection, like I said. And the backdrop is actually really peculiar. So the disciples have been appointed by Jesus in John 20 uh, to continue his work. So Jesus says in John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So now they're, they're going to be Jesus in the world, okay? And so they'd seen him resurrected. They'd spoken to him. Thomas went as far as touching Jesus. Remember this? And yet, for reasons undisclosed to us, seven of the 11 remaining disciples have gone back to their old fishing ground. Peter organized this night-long fishing trip. It seems like just this odd non sequitur, right? You touch Jesus, you talk to Jesus, you've been given a mission by Jesus, and you go fishing. Uh, only the fishermen in the room could explain this one to us. <laughs> so, like, why aren't they halfway around the world at this point, like, speaking and acting in Jesus' name? And, 
healing and delivering people. And, and this is such a puzzling response to me. I'm not a fisherman, so I don't get it. Um, and yet it has profound, this profound meaning, profound setting to speak into our lives. And this is what I mean by that. Um, if you remember Luke chapter 5, when Jesus first meets the disciples, you can turn there, but you don't need to because I'll just walk us through it real quickly. It begins with Jesus standing on the, sea of, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, it's a very much a mirror image story of John 21. Uh, where these men who have become Jesus' disciples, they've been fishing all night, and guess what? They didn't catch anything. <laughs> so Jesus shows up. They have this imp- profound encounter with him, which he tells them to cast their nets again in the water. In that story, they'd pull their nets out. They were done. And Jesus says, try again. And they do. And they catch this amazing number of fish, which nearly sinks their boat. And Luke tells us from that experience, they choose to leave it all. They leave the nets, they leave the fish, they leave their boats, and they follow Jesus. And, and in that leaving and following, in that story, if you remember, it's coupled with Jesus telling the disciples, in particular Peter, don't be afraid. This is Luke 5.10. Don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to do what? Fish for people. So that story, which marks the beginning of their relationship with Jesus, John 21 kind of marks the end or the end of their relationship with the bodily Jesus, they receive this new calling and a new purpose which constitutes their new identity. Uh, because you have to remember that fishing for these, these men was more than just a job they did. It wasn't even a hobby they did. It was who they were. It was the very core of their, how they identified themselves in the world. So when Jesus calls them to leave their work, their families, their communities, and begin following him, he's calling them to re-identify in the world, to He's calling them a new purpose in the world, a new way of being in the world, a new way of thinking about themselves and their relationships and their motivations and their goals. Uh, This is why he says at the end of the miracle in Luke that they no longer be fishing for fish, but fishing for people. He says, I'm going to change the script. You're no longer doing what you think you'd be doing with your life. You're going to do something completely different, new economy. And so they have to rethink uh, not just what they did, but who they were. Are you with me? So back in John 21, end of the gospel, Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to them. He's commissioned them. And they're back out fishing for what? For fish. Are you, are you, are you with me here? So they've gone back to their old way of life. They've gone back to their old identity. They've, they, the thing, they've gone back to that place that, that they previously used to create meaning for themselves. And so Jesus appears to them in the context of that place. And yet, curiously, he doesn't lead with the command Put your nets out in the water. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even lead with an accompanying invitation. You'll fish for people now, remember? He says this, haven't you any fish? Which I've been told by my fishermen friends is precisely the wrong question to ask in that moment. It's worse, it's worse than fisherman trash talk. It's like, it's the question non grata in the fishing world. Like, Jesus asked the precise question that would just get right under their skin, be the most annoying thing you could ask a fisherman, but would get their attention. It would get their blood boiling. Like, as if to remind them not only of their futility, these guys were apparently not very good at fishing, um, at least from the gospel accounts that we have, but also uh, it would remind them of their, their previous encounter with him. It would take them right back to Luke 5. He's saying, what are you doing here? We've been through this. Like, do you remember the beginning of our story? Remember the day several years ago? <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. We, we did this. We've already been here. Why are you here? Like, I just commissioned you. That's what commission means to co-mission, like to make you a partner in the firm. Like, you are now me. I've prepared you for a life of courage 
in one in which you get to proclaim the gospel to people who don't know it yet. I've trained you to liberate people from bondage. I've given you power over the darkness of the world. And you're out fishing. How's that going for you? You know? And by the way, please hear me real carefully. Jesus is not calling them or us out of or away from uh, their way of life, their work, into some new Christian sort of work. Like, there's not previous fishing and now Christian fishing. There's that, that, this is not what Jesus is doing, that we have a life before Christ, a life after Christ. We need to figure out the difference between those and live in one direction. Like, that's not the point. That's not what Jesus is doing. The point, and what Jesus is highlighting, is, is something that is really the fault of many of our hearts, and, which is this. We all have identities that give us comfort and meaning, or both. And many of us, when times get tough, listen to this, we default to our old identities. We just do. We have this propensity to default to our old selves versus walk in the truth and the freedom of our new selves. We just do this. It's part of our heart. And so for the disciples, this was fishing. Peter and the other disciples are back at their old jobs because the death of their rabbi, has, has, uh, their leader, has completely crushed their meaning in the world. And so they're just in survival mode. They are being threatened both by the authorities in Rome as well as the Jewish authorities. Um, they're just trying to stay quiet, under the radar. They're back in the boat, but they're, they're back to what they know and what's most familiar and comfortable to them, albeit they're not that good at. For us, it, it could be work also. Like, the reality is many of us, like them, we sink ourselves into our work when relationships get hard, when life gets hard, when marriage is unfulfilling, when parenting is overwhelming, when just life seems meaningless. We just work. It's an identity for many of us. And we need to think through that where we, we find comfort in work in seasons of discomfort, as uncomfortable as work is for some of us. And so we go there, not because it's easy, because it's familiar. Um, and you know what they say about familiarity. And so it, it might be body image and exercise. It, it, it might be clothing and shopping. It could be a hobby. It could be a role that you're accustomed to playing in your family system, the role of a hero, the role of a helper, the role of a peacemaker. We all have places we go when life gets hard. And they're all good, and they're all God's gifts, but they can also be trappings and ruts that impede us from moving forward as God's people in freedom. And that's what Jesus wants for us. Jesus wants us to live the life of the resurrection. That's why he's appearing to them after the resurrection. Do you see that? That behind this simple question is this invitation into this new way of life, which is to say that whatever Peter and his friends previously thought about the resurrection, it didn't prepare them for this. They thought, as many of us think, that resurrection had to do with the next life. Like, I'm going to live my days out. I'm going to pray, receive Christ, get my ticket, and then I'll be raised. Like, it'll be after I die when I'm in heaven, right? Jesus, resurrection, took place on earth. Like, he's with them eating breakfast in his risen form. Put, like, wrap your head around that for a second. And they, they are definitely not in heaven. <laughs> they are walking the same old roads, fishing the same old waters, talking and working to the same old people. They're given responsibilities, roles, and leadership. For them, resurrection is taking very much on earth. And which means this, the resurrection has to do with them. They're ordinary Everyday lives. It has to do with us, our ordinary everyday lives. Everyday lives. It's not somewhere else that we're risen. It's not someone else. It's not some who else. Like resurrection happens here now to you. And and it's and so for Jesus, he's saying, I need you to understand that if you're going to move forward in my story. 
that, that not only was he radically reconfigured by resurrection, but they are too. And you're being redefined by it. And so our identities, our callings, our motivations for living, our relationships, all of it needs to be rethought. So are you willing, are you allowing the resurrection of Jesus to reconfigure and redefine the core of who you are, who you, how you think of yourself, your fears, your hopes, um, your ambitions, your goals, your relationships? Is resurrection touching those places? Or is it just a thing we talk about one Sunday a year, or maybe two, and then you're on to the next thing? See, resurrection is not an idea that we assent to. It's not a doctrine. It's a reality that we live into that reconfigures and redefines our everyday lives. Your old identity, the way of thinking of yourself, gone. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the new life, here, now, today. So you don't need to go back to the old fishing hole for meaning. Uh, you can still fish. <laughs> it's good. But you don't need to go back to your old identity. You've been given something new somewhere else. And, and you're, you're invited to walk in that. You may still default to the old ways of thinking and, 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 and those old waters, so to speak, when you're, especially when you're discouraged. But even in that default... You can be reminded because of this story and Jesus' question that, there's a, that you're made for more. Christ has given you a new heart with a new purpose, and you can live in that direction. So are you allowing Christ to lead you in that direction? That's the reason for his question. And are you, here's another question. Are you willing, are you celebrating that newness, that risen to life in those around you, the people in your life? You see, if it's true that Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. That means that's true of my spouse. And that's true of my children. And that's true of everyone sitting here this morning, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my calling is to pray for resurrection and seek resurrection in the lives of everyone in my life. To help them see and experience new creation, that they are new in Christ, to declare to their hearts when they're, when they're in doubt, to believe in the spirit when they can't believe. So are you seeking resurrection daily? for yourself, for others? That's the first question. Haven't you any fish? Okay, here's the second question. It's in verses 15 to 17. And this is the one you, you've heard. Follows breakfast, and it's a single question repeated three, time, three times. Do you love me? Um, so here's the story. Jesus sits down with the disciples, eats breakfast, pulls Peter aside, and, and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the these he's talking about is ambiguous, could be the fish, could be the other disciples. We're not entirely clear. But Jesus, or Peter says to Jesus, yeah, you know I love you. And Jesus says to him, what? Feed my lambs. Second time he says the same thing, do you love me? He says, yeah, you know I love you. Jesus says, what? Tend my sheep. And then Jesus asks the same question a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time we're told, that Jesus, uh, Peter is grieved because Jesus asked him the third time. And so Peter answers, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And so Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. And so more than anything, what's clear from the, this part of the story is Peter's hurt. He's grieved that he, has, he gets asked this question three times. It's deep hurt. Like, doesn't Jesus trust him? Doesn't Jesus believe in him, right? He, after all, he's been with Jesus the whole way, hasn't he? I mean, he's the one who, uh, after Jesus said the disciples would all, one by one, abandon him, what does he say? Not me. I'll never leave you, Jesus. <laughs> and yet, just a week earlier, Peter's in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, while 
Jesus is on trial, ultimately crucified. And let me just tell you about that night. It's a cold night. So Peter's with some others, warming himself by a charcoal fire. And the word there in Greek, just real quick, is anthrakion, which I want you to just hold on to for a second. That just means charcoal fire. There's your Greek for the day. <laughs> so Peter's questioned by these other spectators in the courtyard that night about whether he knew Jesus. Do you remember this? How many times? Three. Interesting. And Matthew and Mark, they tell the same story with this stinging detail that after his third denial, Jesus or Peter curses Jesus. Yeah. He says, I never knew the man. And so now, fast forward, they're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They've just eaten breakfast, cooked over what? A charcoal fire. It's, this, it's actually the Greek word is anthrakian. And when that conversation starts, Peter doesn't really connect the dots. He, the, the charcoal fire wouldn't have been enough of a cue. So Jesus asked the question three times. Uh, next to a charcoal fire, while Peter's warming himself before a fire, an Anthrakian, and Jesus, and Jesus is on trial upstairs. It all comes flooding back to Peter. And yet, here's the thing. Even in that grief, as it begins to well up inside Peter, he's hurt. But he begins to perceive the, that in the repeated question, there's something else happening, which is the tenacity of Jesus' love. Jesus, who willingly laid down his life for even Peter, so he could take it back up again and have this very meal with him. He's the, he's the embodiment of love. That's why he died. He died so he could take his life back up again and extend love to everyone in the world. And began with Peter. So the grave cannot separate Jesus from those he loves, and and, and neither can Peter's unfaithfulness. That's why there are three questions. He wants to remind Peter that there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. There's nothing. And there's nothing you've done, there's nothing that you've done that can make me love you less. There's nothing you could do to make me love you more. There's nothing. He's just blending and merging these same experiences into one, the two fires. And so Jesus' questions on the beach today, they reverse and redeem the denials and, and it's a remarkable story. It's Peter, who's the most conspicuous failure among the disciples, the first disciples. He's restored, and now he's, he's redeemed to continue this work that Jesus began. He's given this mantle of leadership, but it's built on unconditional love. It's not going to be built on your pedigree. It's not going to be built on your leadership qualifications. It's not going to certainly be built on the number of followers you have. It's only built on love, unconditional love that Peter did everything he could do to lose. And Jesus says, no, there's nothing you can do to lose this. Of course, and and this is why Peter responds. His beautiful response is, of course I love you, Jesus. How could I refuse that love? So in declaring that love for Jesus, Peter then finds himself summoned in the way of that same love, self-sacrificing love. So three times Peter affirms Jesus' love. Three times Jesus says, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, which means that freely given love, at least as it comes from God, it transforms death and brings us into a new calling. Here's what Jesus says to Peter. When you grow old, you're going to stretch out your hands. Someone else is going to gird you up and take you where you do not wish to go. And that's a prophecy of how Peter's going to die, and it's, it's a death much like Jesus, if you think about it. Take him where he didn't want to go, gird it up, crucified. And so uh, 
Jesus is saying, you know, I'm the good shepherd. I'm guiding you. You're going to now be the same kind of person. And uh, greater love, he says, is none than this than someone laid down their life for their friends. You will be given that same love, Peter, that cruciform love. Do you love me? Because if you love me, uh, you're going to have an opportunity to extend that love to those around you. So here's the question for you. Do you love Jesus? Many of us in the room are, are able to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, I've been singing that song since I was in Sunday school. And if your answer is yes, or if, if you're even thinking it might be yes, get ready, because the promise that comes with the gift of Jesus' love is that you're going to be both caught up in that everlasting embrace of the Father. He will never not love you, <laughs> but you'll also be empowered to spend your life in service and love for others. That's, that's the empowerment of, of Jesus' love. So do you want that? I mean, a lot of us can answer the first part. We want to we love Jesus. We want to be loved by Jesus. Do you want to spend your life in service for others? I'm not talking about getting crucified. Don't worry. I'm just talking about self-sacrifice, loving so deeply that um, you, get to, you get to express the experience of Christ's love that you've had. Um, that's the calling on our lives. And that's the reason for the second question, Okay. And it's a beautiful sacred moment as we move to this last question that Jesus and Peter exchange is charged with love and grace. But check this out. Peter misses it. Like he's forgiven, he's redeemed, he's given, he's restored, he's given a new call. <laughs> and like he completely misses it. For John 21, 20, Peter turns, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. <laughs> this is John, by the way. And when Peter saw him, he asked, hey, Lord, what about him? And uh, I love this moment. <laughs> it's like uh, Peter's Doug the Dog moment in that movie Up. Remember that, remember that d- squirrel? It's like he, I love it because it's humanness. Like I can identify with Peter's distractibility in this moment. Um, looking over his shoulder, just wondering about somebody else. I also love it because in that sacred holy moment, when Jesus is saying to Peter, I want you to lead my church. I want you to understand the depth and immensity of my love for you. I have so much more for your life than you can ever imagine. Peter's not thinking about that. He's not thinking about the repercussions of that moment, the responsibility in that moment. He's thinking about John. (laughs) And why? Like, why is he thinking about John? I don't know what you're thinking about right now, but maybe you're identifying with Peter. Well, behind Peter's looking over his shoulder is this whole backstory that we could go on and on about between Peter and John. It, you know, what, with, what Peter's doing on the beach is apparently what he and John have been doing their whole life together, competing, comparing, measuring themselves against each other. And so Jesus' final question to Peter is, what's that to you? Is really Jesus simply trying to get across to Peter how insane it is for him in that moment to be worried about somebody else. Like, he has the Lord of creation in front of him, offering him an opportunity of the lifetime, and he's worried about somebody else's business. It's like Jesus has something different for John, and honestly, Peter would just do well, and this is just practical wisdom for us, to focus on what Jesus has for him. It's as if he's saying, hey, Peter, you have a path. John has a path. Everybody else has a path, and it's a tragic waste of your sacred, God-given energy to be looking over your shoulder right now, wondering what others are doing on their path. And if that path is better than your path and where your path is going to go, it's a waste of your 
energy and your time. I have work for you to do in the world, Peter. It's good. Sorry, Kurt. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be all right. (laughs) I was just preaching too long. (laughs) I've worked for you in the world. And when you get distracted by somebody else's work, somebody else's life, somebody else's opportunities, you run the risk of missing out on yours. And, And thus, you run the risk out of missing out on your joy. As someone once said, the enemy of joy is what? Comparison. And we compare ourselves to others all the time. We, and we, have the, we run the risk of having the joy absolutely sucked out of our lives because we're always comparing ourselves and, and asking ourselves, what about them? Which takes me back to the enduring power of, of grace in this question that Jesus asked. What is that to you? It, it's in those moments when I'm distracted from my own path. I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm wondering about somebody else's story their opportunities, their talents, their abilities. Like it's when I'm in that space coping with my own insecurity. Insecurity is a, a big deal for me. I mean, maybe it is for you too. Um, I'm reminded of these words from Jesus. What is that to you? Like which is a reminder to simply rest in the place that God has me. It's a good place. Um, it may not be on the nightly news. <laughs> it may not be on somebody's Instagram story. It may not be on a website. You may not be one, one of the 40 under 40. Don't worry about it. It's the place God has you. You're doing what God has you to do. All you can do is be there. And anything more, anything else would just be to miss out on what God has for you today. And, and, and so Jesus says, stay there. Be there. Um, and so I can hear Jesus saying to many of you in the room, I have something for you, friends. It's something sacred. I have a place for you. I have people. I have work. Are you willing to give your full and undivided attention to that? Which is really to me. And discover the power of that. Are you willing to to let the sacred path that I have you on be a place of transformation for you? And both, both for you as well as the world around you as you listen. That could be the community you've been placed in. That could be the relationships God's given you. It could be the work you've been given to do. If you'll, if you'll stay there, what this encounter with Jesus and Peter tells us is you're going to discover that that path has nothing less than the chance to, to, you have the chance to encounter God's presence and God's power. So is there a circumstance in your life right now to conclude in which you need to respond uh, to God's invitation to rest there? in a place of God's call, to fix your attention on Jesus, as Hebrews tells us. What he's doing in your life. How he's moving. How he's writing your story. It might be a change that you're facing. It might be a challenge you're trying to overcome. It could be an opportunity in front of you. It could be as you wait for an answer to prayer. Jesus is saying, give me your attention right now. And as you do that, he will, he will guide your path. So might we do that in this time? Might we be so utterly focused on Christ that we know him with us, his comfort, his leading, no matter the circumstance, no matter the outcome. That's the invitation this morning. Invite, uh, I saw Andrew, there you are, come on up. Um, What I want to do is we conclude, uh, we respond, if you're new here, we'll respond by singing. Um, I want to give us an opportunity before we begin singing uh, to sit in 
this question. Um, what is that to you? I mean, all of us have a place we are right now. Um, it might be a discouraging place. It might be an exciting place. But many of us are, are being tempted to compare, contrast, look over our shoulder. We're so much like Peter. And God would have us be still and know that he's God. Be in the place that you are. And so I want to invite us just to listen to the question from Jesus. Um, and listen to his invitation um, to rest in the place you are. And so as Andrew begins to play, uh, just sit in silence for one moment and then I'll pray for us. <clears throat>